0: And we're going to uh, address some of that and uh, certainly uh, contemplate what is entailed there when we have to um, come down to that uh, idea of leadership that God has established. Uh, And we obviously see it within the home, falling upon the shoulders of husband, father, uh, within the church, of male leadership, and and in fact, we have uh, extensive instruction, really, for the role of women in the church, Uh, and we say, well, does this go against that, and uh, are there exceptions to those rules, and we're going to talk about those tonight a little bit as we look at Judge Deborah. Before we do that, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you again for its instruction to us Uh, And we pray we might be able to apply it to our lives today as we uh, contemplate and consider your work amongst your people um, and also that uh, you are faithful to both sustain us and to chasten us as your children. And both come from your loving hand and we pray that we might recognize that. We also pray that we might begin to grasp better each time we come to your word your truth, and its application in our life, including in this passage. And by your Spirit, we pray that this might occur tonight in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to the account of Deborah, and I don't know how familiar you are with it, so we're going to simply read chapter 4. I'm not going to read the entirety of the song of Deborah. We are going to look at a couple of excerpts from there uh, to see her perspective on her own ministry and on the whole role there within this Uh, military conflict that is recorded for us. So let's begin in chapter 4, verse 1. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron And for 20 years, he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountain of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I'll deploy Sisera, the commander of Javan's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now, Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father in law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the Terebinth tree at Zanaim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Hirosheth, Hagayim, to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera s- s- alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Haralsheth, Hagaim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabba king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here, you shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when they went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger until Jabin, king of Canaan, against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. All right, well, uh, pretty straightforward. Again, we have another military account for us uh, of deliverance that really focuses in on the destruction of the leader of the opposition. And last time it was uh, the king. This time it's the, the king's right hand man, the commander of his army. Um, and we see that that precipitates then a lot more activity, and we find deliverance occurring uh, out of the overflow of this one uh, battle. And so it was a turning battle for us, turning point battle. And so we, we recognize that as a critical part, it's the only part recorded. And certainly from there on, there were other battles, other feats, until finally they destroyed that uh, community of the Canaanites, and uh, particularly Jabin the king. And so, of course, we have uh, several things we want to address here in the midst of this. We've already looked at the use of a judge to um, assassinate the leader of the opposition. In this case, it's not an assassination. It is at the end of a strategic battle, um, but we are going to have an assassination-like event at the end of it. Very similar, where you have a private audience, and you have opportunity, and lay hold of that opportunity, and, and that is to God's glory. So let's take a look at what prefaces this. Um, we find that Israel, of course, is sinned again. The, the pattern as now that, that we're looking for is here. They sinned. They did evil inside the Lord. The Lord puts them under the bondage, if you will, um, subjection to a Canaanite king. Um, they cry out to the Lord and, uh, because of their oppression, and the Lord raises up a judge. Now, This is a little bit different. We're going to break the pattern a little bit. Not just because it's a woman, but we're going to break the pattern in that what we're going to find out is that God didn't raise up Deborah in answer to their complaint. Deborah was already serving in the capacity of a prophetess and judge. She was already in that role. And so, in the mountains there, uh, she had her place, her tree set up, and people were already going there. And so, in the midst of being uh, uh, oppressed by the Canaanite king and these chariots and uh, keeping them in in subjection, uh, Israel still uh, had some liberty and access. And so, um, they were going up to Deborah uh, to be judged. So what was God's answer to their complaint? They cried out to the Lord because of the oppression. And so where did the judge come from? Well, it wasn't Deborah. She was already in that state. But God revealed something to Deborah. Remember, she's a prophetess. And and maybe you don't know this, but I I would hope you all would, um, that in the New Testament church, we do have that role as well. Um, there were um, the daughters of Philip, uh, the um, not Philip, the deacon. Yeah, Philip, um, who were prophetesses. Um, we encounter them occasionally. Um, and in fact, you could um, consider Aquila to be on and, and Aquila Priscilla. Uh, you can consider his wife to be of of that caliber as well. We actually have an office for the church, for women, um, I believe, and it's not reflected in our church um, at this point, but I believe there is a true office of the widow, and uh, very carefully crafted requirements, qualifications, just like we have for pastor, just like we have for deacon uh, in Timothy, Titus, there's an office of widow, and here's what qualifies her and disqualifies her, and here's what her responsibilities are. And so those that is laid out there in that book, and and uh, um, and so we have the idea of the prophetess, and we and and the notion that somehow God limited his his spirit work, his spirit ministry to just the men in the church. It really is foreign to the scriptures. Um, that wasn't the case. And of course, we often go to the idea of Timothy's mother and grandmother who taught him the scriptures, um, and the ministry in the home, and. Uh, um, Yes, it is very evident that the pattern, the expectation for the church was that there would be male leadership. And the prohibition is that a woman is not to take that leadership role away from the male leadership within the home, nor from within the male leadership within the church. And so Paul's statement was, I don't want women to exercise that kind of authority over the men. Doesn't mean you don't have ministry, it's that it is delineated not that that, uh, that ministry is subjective to male authority. And so the role of prophetess is not unheard of, and uh, Deborah's probably the most famous of them, um, but uh, her role as judge is fairly unique. Um, and so we find them coming to her to seek out what does the Lord want and in debates, in uh, issues, communal issues, um, perhaps even in spiritual issues. They're coming to her to seek out what God's purposes and will and, and, and desires are. And so she was judging Israel at that time and so she wasn't called to rescue Israel. That wasn't her calling. She was already serving as the judge and I want to make that very clear. she's already serving in her role as a prophetess and um, So what was God's answer to the cry of Israel regarding the oppression they received? Well, we have to infer it a little bit, but it's not hard to infer. Um, Basically what God does, he comes to her and says, I've called someone to deliver you, but he's not answering. So you call him. And in front of the people gathered there today, you call him out. Call him out for not... Responding to me is essentially what we have. And so in verse 6, she sends and calls for Barak. And the evidence here, the the tone is, Barak, God already told you what to do. You already know this. And that is overwhelming the force of what she's saying to him. Um, So she calls him in and says, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded... Well, when did he command that? We don't know. But Barak knew. The evidence is he wasn't being responsive to God's command for him to deploy an army against Sisera. And so he goes to the prophetess judge, Deborah, and says, listen, the people have cried out. And reveals to her that he has already called someone to deliver Israel, and that man is not responding as he should. That man is not taking up the role that he's supposed to. And by the way, this is going to be one of the elements of the period, and Deborah's going to take it to task um, in her song. She's going to make fun of, almost, she's going to chide at least, we'll say chide, um, several um, tribes. Where were you? Too sleepy? Too tired? Too distracted? Where were you for the battle? Basically, you guys all copped out. And essentially, that's what Brock Barack, I uh, keep <laughs> saying Barack, um was going to do. Um, he's going to cop out. And she holds it to him and says, Listen, God's commanded you. That you are supposed to take 10,000 men, that you are going to deploy um, uh, against you, that I'll deploy Sisera. Um, I'll deliver him into your hand. Um, All these things in verses 6 and 7, it is very strongly declared. You already know this, Barak or Barak. Barak, you already know this. This is what God commanded you. He gave you all the specifics, He gave you all the details. You already know this. And God even promised to give you the glory. He's going to deliver Sisera into your hand. So let's get to it. What's the holdup? And I'm going to go way out on a limb tonight a little bit and say that maybe one of the most powerful elements of a woman's role with regard to God's leadership in churches is a role that she is a natural at. And that's prodding, I know you use other words, but I'm going to use a nice word prodding her husband, her son, the men to do their job. Deborah is not trying to usurp Barak's role. She says, God called you to this, not me. I'm here to call you out. And say, listen, God commanded you. You're supposed to get the army together. You're supposed to go down there and meet Sisera in battle. And you're the one that's supposed to get the victory. And you're the one that's supposed to kill Sisera. God's going to give you the glory. And calls him out on it. And prods his conscience and just, just... What's going on? Why aren't you obeying God? Has God called you to this or not? Obey God's commands. And oh, that, that we would see the powerful value of having someone say, just obey God. That our wives would just come to their husbands and say, please just obey God. Obey the Lord and pray, God, help my husband to obey you. To come to the leadership of men and say, please obey the Lord. And when we, if they're being cowardly if they're if they're shirking it for whatever reason, um, there have been several women pastors and leaders of movements historically going way back, um, and even into some cults, uh, specifically some day Adventists with Ellen White, um, who this is what their proclamation was, and they always use Deborah's example, and here's what they this was the the common statement and uh, I actually got to watch it on video once of this gal in this big meeting and this is what she would say and it's been parroted by many women preachers since then. I believe God called a man to this job. He said no and so that's why I'm doing it. Well, is that the story of Deborah? No. Just because a man is not Being responsive to God doesn't mean you now usurp the role. That is not what Deborah is doing here. She is calling him to do his job. Now, Barak has a problem. He's still not sold on it. He's called out publicly. He says, oh man, this is God commanded me and now he's revealed it to the prophetess. She's called me out in front of everybody here. Um, They're all gathered there because she's the judge. That's where Israel gathers and she's called me out. And so, what's his response? His, he's still not thrilled about the idea. You have God commanding him directly, and then you have the prophetess reinforcing the command, saying, "This is what he said. It's true. And you know, you didn't have, you know, you didn't just overeat that night and have a bad dream. Um, this is true. So obey it." And now we're going to see. Well, what's Barak's problem? He didn't want to do it. He was afraid. He was cowardly. So what do we have? We have his response. His response says, If you go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. What's his spirit? His spirit is still, I don't want to do this. He is still questioning the command of God, questioning the promise of God. He has demonstrated almost no faith in God. And so essentially what is saying, I don't have the faith to do this, um, I trust you in you more than in God. Maybe if you're with me, then I'll have this little umbrella of protection of your holiness and righteousness around me. He didn't trust in him, in God directly and so I can do it by surrogate. I can trust in you as a surrogate there for God. Um, but if you go with me, I'll go. I'll go down there. You've got to come with me, though. Yeah, you, let's see if you're willing to go out there and take a risk against iron chariots. And I almost wonder if he thought, well, she's not going to take me up on it. You, know, you, you ever wonder if that was in the back of his mind? Maybe if I make, maybe it's easy to sit up here by the tree and say, go fight them. It's another thing to have to go down with them, right? She'll back off once she has to go with me. No, she doesn't. She says, okay, fine. And do not doubt that that is the attitude. Fine, I'll go with you. If you need me to hold up your hand and and, uh, prop you up spiritually, and this is a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. He had the physical prowess to do this, there's no doubt about it. And God was going to multiply that in terms of he had the capacity to pull together a large army uh, out of two tribes, he had uh, the influence to do it, and as soon as he called, they came. Um, he had the physical capacity to fight and and uh, and to do all of that. He had, but it was his heart. His heart wasn't there, and so she says, "I will surely go with you." Nevertheless, there's a penalty for this. There's a penalty for this kind of, I'm going to obey, but I don't really. I don't really think it's going to turn out so good. Zero confidence. There's a penalty for that. To go out and do God's work with no confidence that God will bless it. There is a penalty. There is a price to pay. Um, and my wife gets after me sometimes. Can you imagine that? My wife gets after me sometimes. I remember Pastor Bailey back at Rio Rancho. He says, You know, everyone thinks a pastor is like a Mack truck. He just goes and goes and goes. They don't realize that there's a bulldozer behind him pushing him called Joyce Westlink. And so <laughs> um, he, he understood my wife's role very well. And uh, every now and then she'll challenge me. He says, Why well, are you, ex- you just expecting no one to listen? And it's like, Well, that's not good. And so sometimes it's just that weak confidence that you do the work of the Lord, you should have expectation that God will work in people's hearts and lives. And sometimes we need to be reminded that it's not my words, it's God's word. It's not my capacity to convince anyone. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts. It is necessary for me to do it with full trust in him. That I don't do this in the strength of Kirk or in the expectations of Kirk, but in that of Christ. And so built upon our, that foundation, um, there is blessing. When we do it without that foundation, when we have zero confidence um, in God. Now, Paul says, I have no confidence in the flesh. So where was all his confidence? All of it was on God. Okay, and I think that's such an important thing I have to keep measuring my ministry by is that there's no confidence in my flesh. There's no confidence in in my speech. There's no confidence in me. It has to have all of it that I do this because of my confidence in God. And so Barak had some, evidently, some influence and strength that he could have confidence in, but ultimately that's not enough. He didn't have confidence in God. And there's a penalty there. Even doing the Lord's work, if you do it, with no confidence that He will, He has purposed you to do that and, and is going to work in the hearts and minds of people, you're, you're going to lose out. The victory will still be get done. God can still use your ministry, but you're going to miss out. And I think this is what happens to a lot of pastors who experience burnout. Ridiculous phrase, burnout. Obnoxious, ridiculous phrase. It has no place in the Christian vocabulary, the idea that I burned out for Christ. That just means that you are doing it in confidence in yourself and not in God. It just, that's reality. And so here we come to Barak and we're asked the question, um, what's it going to cost him? And so verse 9, Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking for the Lord, uh, Are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman, uh, so Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And uh, he calls the two tribes. They come down. We have the battle. They rout it. In the Song of Deborah, we find, s- we don't have a lot of indication of how the battle went. We just know that the Canaanites lost and the Israelis won really good. Um, but in the Song, we find out a little bit of what happened, that uh, this little brook, this little little waterway, Kishon, flooded. <laughs> And you know what flooding, overflowing floods do to chariots? They just sink in the mud. And so the chariots, and God uses this oftentimes against chariots, says, I can just take the wheels off. He did that to Pharaoh, right? Here goes Israel. They march over on dry ground. Here comes Pharaoh's chariots. And God says, and we often think that, because we watched the movie, (laughs) it was a close call. Um, They were stuck in the middle, They got to the middle, their chariot wheels fell off. Well, what do you do now? You drag your chariot to one side or the other, and then they're done. Um, And so God has a way of dealing with chariots, and one of the ways is mud. Mud is a great way to deal with chariots, and we find that the Kishon River overflows. Um, There's a flood, and that just pretty much makes the chariots significantly less of of a... problem. And that is probably the reason Sisera gets out of his chariot is because it's stuck. He's exposed in his chariot. Instead of being an asset, the chariot becomes a liability because you're sitting up higher than everybody. You're sitting there. You're stuck in the mud. You can't get going. And so he says he alights from his chariot and runs for it on foot. He had better luck on foot than in his chariot. That's what he can escape on his foot. He can't escape on chariot. And so um, we learn some of that from the song a little bit later on that it was that mighty rushing Kishon uh, river that did, it him, did him in. And so why would you get out of a chariot if you're trying to escape? Well, because the chariot's stuck. God can take away the advantage of the enemy very quickly and God did that. And You can almost see the confidence building in the men of Israel over the course of this. Um, and it just took this nudge from Deborah, this prodding, this rebuke, really. It really comes down to rebuke. Why don't you obey God's commands? What's wrong with you? Oh, you need me to go with you. Okay, I'll hold your hand. Come on. But there's going to be a penalty. The penalty is it's gonna, the glory is going to go to a woman. The glory in battle is to kill the enemy's commander um, in this case. And so we, we look at this, we say, well, that means it's going to be reserved for Deborah. no. It's going to be another woman. Um, And in fact, it's not even what we would consider a good woman. We're introduced to this family um, here in, uh, oh, let's see, verse 11, um, as they line up for battle and and they're gathering, mustering their army there in Kadesh, up in the mountains. Um, We're introduced in verse 11 to the Kenite, Heber, um, and we find out some history of him, of the children of Hobab, the father in law of Moses. Um, but notice in the middle of the verse, he had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the Terebin tree in Za'anaim, which is beside Kadesh. And so this, now we read that and it doesn't mean a whole lot to us. What, what does all that mean? All that means is that this man had withdrawn himself from his clan. And in fact, that he had really become allies with the Canaanites. He had withdrawn himself and his family, his group, and he had moved north. They had moved out of the region of where their family inheritance is and all that. And he had kind of distanced himself from them. And the indication is, is that he has distanced himself from Israel. And so he's there at, in the region where they're mustering the army. Well, how do you think Sisera finds out that they're mustering an army? The next verse doesn't tell us who said, told him. It says they told him. Who's the they? Who's the they that told Sisera that they're mustering an army? Well, I would conclude that the they are Heber's family, Heber the Kenite. Um, Later on, we are told that Heber the Kenite Had peace with Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. There was peace between those two. And so um, I would contend that the ones who told Sisera about the mustering army up in the mountain was Heber the Kenite. He is an ally with the Canaanites. He has separated himself from his own people, isolated himself from them and is now aligning himself with the Canaanites. Um, And so now we have another gal to talk about. So we have Deborah, a woman who will not usurp the place of a man, but recognizes that God may put it in her heart to prod that man. I didn't use the word nag. Uh, If you want to know the difference, we can discuss it. But to prod that man to obey God. And you can encourage men without nagging them. Nagging is repetitious and annoying. Uh, This is neither of those. So she is used of God to bring him and to then, um, after challenging him a little bit of why aren't you obeying God, to also say, I'm willing to support you obeying God. I'll go with you. You obey God, I'll go with you. There'll be a price, but it's a small one to pay, I guess. Um, And uh, you'll be written in the annals of history as one of those weak, willy, coward guys that went out there finally did what he had to do because of one pushed him into it, Um, (laughs) however you want to portray him. But now we come to another gal, and now look at her circumstances. This is a gal living in a home where her husband has taken her away from the family, away from the tribe, the clan, Isolate themselves, has befriended the Canaanites, and the indication is that he's kind of the spy for them in the region there. Um, and, but it's not what she wants, but she's following her husband. She's there because her husband's there, and there's no indication that she has demonstrated this. In fact, Sisera arrives there and has full confidence in Jael's protection to the point that he's falling asleep. He fell asleep in her tent. And so here's this gal. Well, where's her heart? Is her heart for or against Israel? Well, her husband's heart is against Israel, but her heart is for Israel. How do you live in a house like that? And this isn't going to be the first time or the last time we're going to be visiting a gal like that. Um, That's going to happen later on. Remember when David is going to encounter one of his future wives? Um, Her heart was for him. Her husband's heart was against him. How do you function there? As a wise woman of God, how do you function in a home like that? Well, we don't find any indication that there was any kind of antagonism against her husband. She was led there. She was there. um, And her husband wasn't around at the time, whether he was out in the battle or or whatever, wherever he was, or whatever he was doing, were not given privy, made privy to that. So um, she's there, and so she has an opportunity to exercise some independent decisions because her husband isn't there. And um, there's no indication that she would have done this if he were, but she sees an opportunity and recognizes that she needs to take an action. She could have very easily not taking matters into her own hands, right? She could have very easily just walked out in the tent and waved down an Israelite, and in fact, that's going to happen. They're going to be by pretty soon. Um, But rather than that, she takes matters into her own hands, grabs a peg and a hammer, and uh, sneaks in and kills him, drives that thing, boom. Um, That first stroke better be a good one, right? It better be a powerful first stroke that does the job. And apparently she is very successful at that. Drives that peg down and, and uh, kills him. Uh, and by the way, in still today in Arab culture, it is a horrific thing to be killed by a woman. And you do realize that in Islam today, you lose heaven if you're killed by a woman. That's right. If you are killed in battle by a woman, you forfeit a right to their version of heaven. And you know who figured that out? A bunch of people there were fighting up there in northern Iraq. What were they called? The um, no, it wasn't one of those factions. One of those tribal groups up there. Oh, they just left my head. I had their name earlier. But what they did is they trained women warriors. And you know what the women would do on the outskirts of the town? They were getting, they'd, they'd call out from the hills. And it was all women's voices. And you know what all the ISIS fighters in the city did? Ran away. Because if you're killed by a woman, you don't get heaven. Great strategy, right? Right? They understood. Once you understand your enemy, you know their weaknesses. And so when you see this guy killed by a woman, this is more than just a disgrace issue. Um, In the Arab world, this is horrific for this to happen. And so he is, and and that's why it's also, remember the woman that dropped the thing over the wall and killed that one guy and how disgraceful that was to be killed by a woman. Um, And so who kills you matters. Um, and that's why Saul says, you kill me, because I don't want them to think they killed me. It matters who kills you in battle. And so here's this gal. And so she sees an opportunity, and her the bend of her heart comes out here. There is no indication. First of all, there's a rout of the army. That's obvious. And so this is going to really protect her household, because if she doesn't do this, in the route, who's going to become one of the targets for the Israeli army? It's going to be the home of Heber. Take him out. He's an ally of Jabin. Well, now she has protected her home, and this is exactly what Abigail's going to do later in response to her husband's foolishness of siding with the wrong side. She's going to protect her home doing uh, the righteous thing, recognizing who the real enemy is and then taking an action either for the ally, the, the, the people of God, or against his enemy. For Abigail, she went out there and interceded for her husband. Um, and uh, in this case, uh, Jael is going to go against and, and destroy the enemy. And so there's the deliverance. And so when we talk about these two gals, let's recognize not that they are usurping and rebelling. That is not what's going on in their lives. They are not usurping leadership in their, in their nation that God has commanded. God commanded Barak to do this. He didn't command Deborah to do this, but he informed Deborah of what he had commanded him. And she then prods him and, and rebukes him, challenges him, and supports him. In him obeying and leading the army. So she does not become a Joan of Arc or anything like that. She is just there and Barak Barak is doing it all. Um, So by the end, who's chasing Sisera? The king. Or I'm sorry, Barak. Who's chasing Sisera, the commander? Barak is not. You don't find Deborah chasing Sisera down. It's Barak that's doing it. And he arrives and so, and now Jael. Jel has been submissive to her husband. Um, Even though her heart is right and her husband's heart isn't, he's he's for the Canaanites. She obviously is for the God of Israel, for her own people. And when given that opportunity, she doesn't uh, exercise this against her husband but for the protection of her home. And I think this goes along with what the New Testament says. What is a believing wife supposed to do and why within a home with an unbelieving husband? Well, Peter says, even if they don't obey the truth, you submit to them. So without a word, you can win them. Did she speak a word to her husband? No. Did she deliver her husband? Yes, without speaking a word. Now, don't walk around with hammers and, or nail guns, okay, ladies? Um, be a lot easier today if you had a nail gun. <laughs> um, just had to throw it out at you. Anyway. Um, the, the New Testament always also says that by you being in the home, you sanctify the home. You set it apart. And so, yes, if your husband isn't obeying God, isn't, well, is, is even a child of God but not in obedience to God, Um, Yes, there's place to prod him when he is violating the commands, but not persistently to nagging. We are called to be obedient ourselves, yourself within the home and with the hope of winning him. And so um, this is the role. You will not find these two gals, either of them, usurping or rebelling against that leadership we find them functioning very effectively within the confines of their proper role. And this is what you should expect from godly women, right? Not that they are inept and doing nothing and just sitting back, but that they are active agents but never violating that place that they have. And so the idea that women are second class in Christianity is just foolishness. That's just not true. Um, Your role is critically important. And I'm going to tell you there are men who would be in this church today leading if their women would have just been an encouragement instead of a discouragement to them. If their women had supported instead of undermined their husbands. Those men would be in this church. They would be leaders and Their families would be blessed by it. But because they didn't support and they became negative, not encouraging their their husbands to obey the Lord, but actually keeping them from obeying God. So Deborah is not a usurper of authority. She was just there to prod the one that God did raise up for the task to do his job and encourage him and even go along with him if necessary. Um, Jael was not taking charge of the home she had followed her husband she was submissive to him but she took action when it came opportunity to protect the home to protect that household and even to protect her husband ultimately and and that is the role of the godly woman in the home that we can learn out of this story of Deborah and Jael and Barak And so we have um, some indication that there was um, a general call. Only two tribes came. Um, Some of the other tribes, uh, Deborah asked the question, where were you? Um, It says Gilead stayed over there. Reuben just thought about it a lot, never did anything. Um, Dan uh, just (laughs) stayed out fishing. (laughs) Um, they were at, uh, it, it's a colloquial, it's a, it wasn't literally that they're out fishing, it was just that they were just taking it easy, they were out there just, and just like us, what are you gonna do when you retire? I'm just gonna go fishing, right, play golf, whatever, um, that's really what she says, you're just out there fishing, uh, where are you guys at, you know, Gilead just stayed out, Asher just went over by the seashore, they just, they went to the beach, these people went fishing, these people went golfing, um, Nobody else showed up, just these two tribes showed up, and God gave them a great victory. So the fact is is that what we see common happens back then too, that men sometimes just don't have the faith, the courageous faith to do what God commands them to do. And yes, sometimes we need some support, and we need some prodding, Uh, and recognize the difference between that and nagging there is a difference Um, and uh and one of the things that keeps us from obeying god is ease it's just there's always something entertaining to do to keep us from doing what needs to be done and so if you look through all of these things of where they were where were these people the other uh things well they were all doing things that um Reuben was sitting in the sheepfold thinking, great thoughts. <laughs> yeah, we should go help. Um, uh, Gilead just stayed home. Dan went fishing. Asher went to the beach. But Zebulun and Naphtali, they risked their lives. Two out of 12. And one of the other tribes, Judah and those even heard about it, we don't know. But the region had... Um, at least uh, those tribes, and only two out of them responded. And so certainly not the majority, right? It's amazing, again, how many times it's the minority that are responsive to God, not the majority. And so don't feel like you've got to wait for a crowd, because if you wait for a crowd to follow God, you will never follow him. You've got to be able to, to willing to stick out, to be go it alone, or with a very few people if you wait for a crowd you will never follow the lord okay let's pray lord god we do thank you for the testimony of these gals and for their godliness and for their courage um to do what needed to be done and yet also to be submissive to the authorities that you place in their life and and lord we thank you for these two tribes that set out and willing to risk their lives when called upon and lord we um Know that we may be well in that condition where you've commanded us to be bold and courageous. And um, Lord, we shirk it and we put it off and we uh, don't have the faith to trust you to do it and forgive us of that. And Lord, we thank you for raising up some to challenge us and remind us of your commandments and support us in in that, and we thank you for them. With our church, with our families, and Lord, we do pray that you might continue to work through each one in our church, both our leadership and our men, but also uh, among our ladies, that they might uh, obey you fully and see their role not as secondary but as critically important within uh, this church and within the uh, community of faith at large. And again, Lord, we uh, just commit this time to you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.